Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Uh, a double cheeseburger, onion rings, and a large orange drink, please. Did, did, did you get my order? Sammy Hagar here, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Ah, woo! Good God, woo! You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tan Talk 1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our shows, our past shows, 567 shows to be exact, uh, go to our archive page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you will find the podcast. Good evening, Tommy. How you doing? Oh, 
I'm great, Robert. How are you? I'm in a radio mood today because we have a very, we have a very special guest coming on this afternoon. This guy's a legend in the uh, radio world, so I'm delighted to have him on. This guy's a professional. I'm not a professional. I'm just some guy that knows how to. Well, actually, Tommy flips buttons, and I just kind of know how to use this mic right over here. So, but anyway, real quick, I'm going to go into a couple stuff, a couple things coming up. Uh, don't forget any car shows. Check them out. FloridaCarshows.com. Hey, it's Tuesday, but they're not open. But Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they are. Go check out the Rib Shack Barbecue. My buddy's over there smoking Rib Shack, downtown Largo, 727-501-9090, 426, yeah, Elephant Motor, 426, West Bay Drive. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, my buddy's over there at, you know, Mid-State Shoe Repair, or Mid-County, Mid-something, rather, Largo Shoe Repair. Go see Jake over there. Does a good job. Heals my soul. Anyway, uh, let's see what else. Oh, yeah. Of course, if, you, if you're, you know, you got some loose nuts, bolts, uh, go check out my buddies down here at Tri-City Bolt and Screw in St. Pete. They do the thing, you know. Um, Monterey Collector Car Week is coming up in August, okay? And uh, it, with a little luck, if nothing really goofy happens out there in the real world, uh, we should be there. So we will do our commencing in about a week or two. We'll be commencing our interviews with all our good friends and all the event guys out there at Monterey. Uh, right here in our own backyard, July 28th, 29th, 30, and 31 in Orlando at the Orange County Convention Center. Mecum Auction. We will be there. Oh, yes, we will, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. We'll be tripping around there looking at some really, really cool stuff. So you got a four-day event there. A lot of cars. Classic cars are still hot. They're cool. There, like the radio, a trip down memory lane. Right, Tommy? Tommy goes, yeah. All right, and on that note, uh, one really cool thing here, real quick, I'm going to talk for a second, is uh, while I was diddy bopping, I had to go to Orlando this weekend to go pick up some porch parts. And on my way over there, you know, I have a tendency to just kind of like hit the back roads when I can. This weekend coming up, oh, by the way, is uh, The Villages, uh, the car show. It starts around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And we've been kind of slumming around there for the last uh, four or five months, so we should be up there, my buddy IG and I. Maybe Bobby, I'm not sure. But uh, pretty cool pretty cool gig. I like it. Anyway, old school, cool cars, neat people, town square, plenty of fun, action, food, music. It's the way a car show should be. Like the good old days. But anyway, um, so I was did bopping on my way over to this these little towns. I'm not going to mention any in particular, but I stumbled on this one guy's shop. They had a bunch of junk laying out there. Looked like my place. And uh, like my front yard, my wife complains. But at any rate, crap everywhere, cars everywhere, parts everywhere, you know, that kind of deal. And uh, like Pinellas Park. No, I'm just kidding. No offense to my friends down in the park. <laughs> yes, we know how to win friends and whatever that uh, cliche is but at any rate uh so this old guy sitting there he's grinding on a side of an old buick skylark by 71 72 something like that and i said hey you wouldn't happen to be the uh, owner by any chance or is the owner around he says yeah i hate to admit it but he is i said cool we start jaw jacking a little bit you know it always helps to drop names first thing you want to know is get to know somebody real quick where you're from who you are you know that kind of stuff and sometimes when you find out where they're at and they tell you a town and if you've been there like in this case the guy was from indy i said oh yeah i used to go up to indianapolis uh, for the for the races, Grand Nationals back in the day, and uh, I said, by the way, I I used to go hang out with a friend of mine in some little town up there near Bob Glidden. He says, oh, I know Bob real well. I used to race against him. I said, really? So one thing led to another. Now suddenly we're best friends. He takes me through a shop, and there's just like Corvettes in there. There's all kinds of cool stuff, really interesting stuff, car parts and stuff like that. Fast forward. A friend of mine is looking for a 12-bolt for a first-gen Camaro. Yeah, I got one laying around. So we walk out in his yard, and sure enough, underneath the pile of crap, there is a 12-bolt housing for a uh, first-gen first uh, Camaro. You know, and then I go, wow, that's cool. So anyway, he, uh, he goes, here's something you probably haven't seen. Well, he walks in his little den, his little cave, man cave there, and comes walking out with this beautiful, beautiful Vintage 60s Hillborn injection system. I mean, it was all there, all the hardware, the pumps, the whole nine yards, all the fittings. And I thought, wow. And it was like all original. I mean, like it had the original Heim joints, which were kind of funky looking. You know, they're not beefy like they are today. These are kind of like, look like precision little Heim joints. Cool thing, you know, for the, for the levers and for the linkage and stuff. Cool piece. And then when I, I had to use the restroom to wash my hands, and as I was walking over the, to the restroom, there was this fuel injection system fuel injection intake off like our early late 50s early 60s chevrolet you know 
and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. But what was bizarre is there was a four-barrel flange welded to the top of it, you know, helicoiled, and, uh, or heliarced, and, uh, well, whatever, aluminum welded. And uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. It had one ear broke off, and there was a little tag on it. I didn't pay any attention to it. I just thought, wow, who would ruin an intake like that? Conversation ensues, goes on. I'm trying to make this fast because we got a really cool guest on, and I want to get this guy. Um, anyway, so he says, "Yeah, well, you know, blah blah blah." This, yeah, you know, and he starts dropping names. You know, he used to race for Norm uh, Spalding and 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 had Mopars and Chevrolets and Pontiacs, and there was some racing Pontiac, uh, racing Chevrolet stuff that with Pontiac valve covers on it, weird stuff like that. Just, but you just never know whose shop you're gonna trip and fall in. I mean, it's just. It's groovy, man. I'll dig it. And for a car guy like me, you know, it's like, uh, okay, it's a trip down memory lane. It's just stuff that I know and just stuff that I get into, and I love it. And um, don't know how much longer this kind of stuff's going to be around. The guy's in his 80s, got three cases of cancer, and he's trying to do the best he can to stay alive, keep himself preoccupied, but he had a warehouse full of stuff. He had a rack of Muncie transmissions that looked like something you see at a racetrack, you know, with little carts. There had to have been easily 10 trannies there, maybe more. Um, just weird stuff laying all over the place. But anyway, so he tells me, starts telling me about this intake manifold. And this intake was something that he picked up. He was friends with Smokey Eunuch. And I was telling him my little story about Smokey Eunuch. And he was telling me the story on this intake manifold. And he says, yeah, this is an early version tunnel ram that Smokey Eunuch was playing around with. Well, if you really looked at it close, and I did, it was precision welded. It wasn't like some guy just put monkey wells on this thing and he did it in his back room. This was done professionally, and it was all machined on the inside, and and the and the the runners and everything like that. It wasn't uh, wasn't cheesy. And I thought, wow. And I said, so what's the story on it? He says, well, you know, it might be for sale. I said, what about the fuel injection? He says, mm, it could be for sale. Just, but guys like there's guys like this all around the country, and in the next three to five years, you're going to see this stuff just popping up left and right, and it's going to be cool because some amazing stuff. Because guys like myself, I'm a little bit of a hoarder. There's stuff out there like you wouldn't believe. Problem is, where we're going to go with it. So, at any rate, on that note, Tommy is going to fire up that stereo, and we're going to get our guests on, and we're going to be talking Ray Didio here in a few minutes, guys. So you're tuning into Nostalgia Radio and Cars. Don't touch that dial. You do not want to miss this show this evening. This is going to be funny. Um, we got a real radio professional come on. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgia Radio and Cars. Don't touch that dial. I will. I promise you. Be right back.
How you doing? Okay. Officer. Where are you folks headed? The, the Midwest. Midwest. Uh-huh. Plan on staying long? We're moving there. What kind of car is this here? A Pinto. A Pinto. I converted it into a camper, My sir. Leroy did all the work himself. Uh-huh. Oh, honey. Well, you better turn off that engine. We have just a few questions we'd like to ask you before you continue on your way, okay? Okay. <laughs> This is the annoying Jay Leno, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back to tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. It's time to introduce our very special guest for the evening. This gentleman is legendary in the radio world. Uh, he considers himself a personality, a former radio personality. He's very modest, and uh, he's producing documentaries now. But uh, him and his wife, Joy, are legends in the industry. And there's a uh, they talk about the term morning zoo. And if you look up morning zoo, the definition says, two personalities capable of spontaneous comic interaction as well as complete delivery. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, the legendary, out of KC... In St. Louis, Missouri, Ron Stevens. Ron, how you doing, buddy? Come on, let's hear it for Ron, everybody. Come on. <laughs> hey. Oh, I should, I, we should have some. We should have some more sound effects. But anyway, how you doing, bud? Where, okay, Robert. Good to hear from you. Where did you get that copy of the Great Midwest? I well, haven't heard I, that myself in a long time. <laughs> I saw that on some as I was kind of YouTubing around, and I went through that whole album that you and your wife did okay and i listened to it but what struck me was when he said pinto of course this is nostalgic radio and cars (laughs) i had to do that but i had to to avoid any kind of copyright issues i added the siren the handcuffs and the slamming of the uh um the the jailhouse door oh okay but i liked it i liked it (laughs) So, but well, that's the beauty of radio. I mean, it's just you know, if you we, we use an Adobe program here, and I've learned it over the years, and I love editing stuff. You should hear some of the political stuff that I did back in the day when when what's his name was uh, the the squatter in the White House. But anyway, that's another story for another day. Oh yeah, the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I got a story. I have a story about him, by the way. Please, please, please. What this is all about you? I've never told you. Uh, this was, Joy and I were doing a morning show in New York, and one day we saw in the paper in the New York Post a story about this kid who was on the Brooklyn Bridge one evening, and he looks down and he sees uh, Donald Trump's yacht coming underneath the bridge, and there was a big party on it. So he stood up on the bridge, and he peed on it. He actually pissed down off the bridge onto the yacht. Now, of course, that's rude, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's New York, so... You know, he's lucky that's all he did. (laughs) All we did was talk about it on the air. We we were talking about it and and laughed because it's funny. But we meant no disrespect. We're just reading the newspaper. There it is. So we actually got a call the next day or earlier, later that day from Donald Trump's brother. Really? He was handling, he was was Donald's uh, publicity manager or something at the time. And he said that Donald wants an apology. He demands an apology. And uh, I said, well, you know, I don't mind apologizing because, yeah, it was kind of a rude story and we're laughing at it, but he has to come on the show to get the apology. Oh, nice. Donald decided to come on the show. He comes on the show. He spent the entire time, of course, talking about what do you think? Donald Trump. Sure. And how important he is and how rich he is and all, all the things you would you know, 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 learn to know and love about Donald Trump. Well, the art of the deal. Yeah, well, this was before the art of the deal, though. Oh, it was? Okay. Yeah, this was 1989, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, he gabbed. He talked about himself the whole time. Did not get the apology. Forgot to get the apology. So oh. I still owe him that apology. Well, I wasn't referring to him. I was referring to the other squatter from 2008 to 2016. That was a squatter. Oh, okay. I, that that that, well, that loser. Ah, 
Oh, that loser. Yeah, right. Anyway, but, that, but hey, listen, we are a non-political or a apolitical show here. We don't really, you know. I tried to keep that one as straight as I could. Just you, you did okay. You did okay. You know, you, you didn't hurt my feelings, but I mean, you know, even though I'm a Trump supporter, and I will say that, but no big deal. Yeah, I know that. We won't hold that against me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ron, give us the lowdown. Give us your skinny, the background, and then I want you to share some really cool story because there's a uh, Q Morning Zoo connection. There's a WKR. KRP connection, all kinds of cool stuff. So just lay it on us, buddy. Yeah. Well, I, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, which is where KC Radio is. And uh, that's where I met my wife, Joy, Joy Gridnick. Uh, we both started at KC in the early 70s, and she was Joy in the morning, first female in uh, rock music on the air in St. Louis, one of the first in the country, but uh, definitely the first in St. Louis. And... Um, we just started doing comedy together there. We were there for 10 years through the 70s with that early team, and then moved to L.A. and wrote for television. And the first show we wrote for was WKRP in Cincinnati, probably because of our radio background. And, and our first comedy album had just come out, which was called Somewhere Over the Radio, which is a spoof of the FM format. Uh, so it, it was a perfect fit, and that got us started in writing for television. Uh, we went on to become syndicated in radio, which is how we ended up on the Q Morning Zoo in Tampa with uh, originally with uh, Cleveland Wheeler and Scott Shannon, and then uh, Mason Dixon came along with Bill Conley and that gang, and we we were with them for over twenty years on that morning show doing. Uh, I, you played fast food a little earlier, right? I sure did. Yeah, Scott Shannon made that bit famous for us. Did he really? In New York. Oh yeah, he played that a lot. So, now, how did this whole thing come? You were relatively young. Tell us about KC. Was KC an AM or an FM station back in the day? It was an FM station. It was, uh, you know, one of the first progressive rock FM stations back with uh, WABX in Detroit. Uh, uh, WSHE down in Florida, weren't they? They were a progressive rock station, weren't they? Um, I believe back in the time. I, where were they out of? They were, uh, weren't they near Orlando? I'm Could have been. I'm not familiar. I'm, I'm not yeah, familiar with that. Yeah, Fort Lauderdale? Hey, thank you, Avery. Yeah, Fort Lauderdale. Okay, well, that's part of it. Well, we call that Fort Liquordale down there. <laughs> I can understand that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so KMET in Los Angeles, KLOS in Los Angeles, WMET in uh, New York. There, there were, there were a, you know, a handful of stations that were powerhouses with progressive rock, rock music. Let me ask you... Let, Okay, let me ask you this real quick. You used the term progressive rock. Was it referred to as progressive rock back in the late 60s, 70s? It really wasn't, was it? That's what that, it was called first. First it was called progressive rock. Really? Then it was, which basically meant, you know, the longer cuts, the album cuts. Okay. Technically, it meant a song that had like a jazz fusion to it where the musicians would jam a lot, like a, you know. Like Santana. A jam band, like yeah, Santana or, or Grateful Dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. Um then it became known as AOR, which was album-oriented rock, because okay. it was playing all the album cuts. And uh, we, at that point, we were allowed to play whatever we wanted. When you were on the air, you were king or queen. You played whatever you wanted for many years. So your program manager, or, or you were actually the program manager, but you're... I was the program director. Program director, okay. But the studio manager basically gave you kind of like carte blanche, right? Yeah, well, not just me, but... Everybody, when you were on the air, you became your own program director at that point, you know, while you were there. Um, I mean, there were limits, of course. We had a huge studio full of albums, like WNEW in New York had um, this living room-sized studio full of albums. You could go in there, you could play every cut on every album. It would probably take you three or four months to get through them all. You know, there were so many albums in there. So, But that was, that was the limitation, but that's not much of a limitation. You didn't look at a sheet of paper and say, what's next? Or look at a computer screen and say, what's next? You just plunk thumb through the albums. If it was a rainy day, you might go to Grateful Dead or, or, or James Taylor. Or, you know, it's something softer and more rainy day sounding. And on a sunny day, you're going to go to Rush or Led Zeppelin or... Gypsy. Somebody, you know, yeah. Yeah, Gypsy. Anyway, okay, so let's... Gypsy, but, yeah, yeah, that's, I threw that in there. Well, now, we played um, Mama's Pride, which was basically like a uh, the band out of St. Louis back in the day, and I played Blue Miss, which is a great song, by the way. I heard it. 
yeah. yeah. And uh, so, like, back in the day when these bands, because I've, I've had musicians on the show, and I always hear their side of the story. So now let's say your side of the story. You're the DJ, DJ there, and this band wants to get some recognition. So they go, knock, knock, knock. Hey, look, I got this uh, little 45 here. Uh, could, you, could you play it? And that is exactly what happened with Mama's Pride. Okay. Because not, not just because they were a local band, but because they were a local band, they were able to actually walk down to the station and knock on the window. We were at uh, ground level, and there was a window behind the disc jockey. And you could knock on it. We could open that window up and talk to the listeners. Really? Right out that window. Yeah. It, was, uh, it had its benefits, and it had its downside. But uh, it, it, it uh, was scary sometimes to be on the air and realize <laughs> there are five or six people behind you watching everything you do. But Mama's Pride actually came back from Memphis with their first album when it was once it was recorded. Walked, from, um, drove from the airport to the radio station, walked up to that window, knocked on it. Ted Hobbit was on the air at the time, the DJ. He opened the window, and Pat and Danny Liston handed it to him and said, here's our new album. Thought she'd want a copy. And, and, and uh, Ted said, oh, I'll put it on. And he, without even listening to it, just came on the air and said, uh, Mama's Pride's new album is here. Let's listen to it and put it on and just played it straight through. That's cool. Yeah, you could do that back then. Do you wish that radio was still like that? And do you think it'd ever go back to that? And was there a certain, just, there's a certain, I don't know, I don't want to use the word innocence, but just a certain purity about it back in, you know, the way it was. Yeah. So you chose the word period instead of innocence. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you're right. There was a time of innocence and, it was uh, it was also more than just the music as a consequence. It was this community of like minds that shared a uh, passion for that music, all gathering at this radio station. And that's such an excellent question. Uh, you know, can it be done again? Yeah, I think it needs to be done again. And it might not be done on a broadcast radio station because the technology has changed and there's so much more available you know, more ways to be heard, as you know. You're on mm-hmm. the Internet, you're on TuneIn, you're on like 18,000 radio stations, the list keeps growing, you know. Uh, but you're all over, you know. We can pick you up all, in all kinds of places all over the world, which is makes it even better. But if you're creating a relationship with these listeners and you, all, and you're, you're, you have a two-way thing going with them all the time, uh, they're talking to you as much as you're talking to them, you're creating a community, and you're learning from them as much as they're learning from you. That's what it needs, and that's what's missing. Don't you think? Absolutely. It's interesting you mentioned that because my son and I, as we were driving in today, we said the same thing. I said, Bobby, so give me your take on this whole thing. And he basically said, well, the deal is, is in the old days, the radio disc jockey, the radio station had this relationship with the whole entire town. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew the disc jockey. He'd go out and you'd do some you know, live remotes, and people would call in. And there was this interaction. It's like you were his, the DJ's buddy, and they would play the requests, yeah. and they would play the music, and they would play some of the stuff that was, you know, not the commercial crap, but just a lot of the local stuff, even. And just exactly. and and there was this, there was this, like you said, there's this relationship there, and it's basically geographic. So whether you're in St. Louis, you got your 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 following there. They're St. Louis based, okay. Whether you've got mm-hmm. whether you're in Chicago, whether you're in Carmel, whether you're in uh, you know Fort Lauderdale or someplace like that, Orlando, or a small little town like uh, Crystal River or something like that. You know, people tune into that station, and the disc jockey gets it. He gets feedback. You know, he he and, and shells it out, and it, it just works. And there's this uh, yeah. people tune in the radio. It's when you're in your car, you still listen to your radio, and that's where the majority of the people are. Exactly, and you know why, Robert? Why this isn't happening today? This is my my opinion. Okay, theory, because programmers, managers, and owners of radio stations really need feel, think they need this control over what goes over the air because of lawsuits, you know, the fear of something being done or said over the air that the lawyers are going to hate, and then suddenly there's lawsuits, and there have been plenty of them over the years. So to prevent that, everything is scripted, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You, know? you don't pick the music, we pick the music. You don't, you don't say what you're going to say, we tell you what you're going to say. You can put in your own words, but you're going to say what we tell you to say. Pretty much leave it at, like, at that. And it's cheaper. It's cheaper to not have stars. If someone on your radio station is given the freedom to become a star, now that person demands more money because it's, it's like it's like sports. 
It's exactly like sports. Someone becomes, uh, you know, a three fifty hitter. He's certainly worth a lot more than a guy who's hitting, you know, one eighty nine all the time. You know, so he makes more money. And same thing happens in radio. That becomes prohibitively expensive in their minds. Where, but they're not realizing this person's bringing you a lot more listeners. Shouldn't you be treating this, per- this person like gold? Well, yes, no, yes, no, because yes, because if they're bringing in a lot of listeners. No, because if we fire them, a lot of those listeners will still stay. And if we don't fire them, someday there's going to be a lawsuit and we're going to be stuck with it. You know, that's their thinking. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because, like, I was telling you the story how when I was out west and I was listening to satellite radio and I tuned into Garage Bands, which is on uh, number tw- oh, channel great. 21. Okay, great. so yeah. where I what prompted me to kind of get into this was I got sick and tired of all the commercial crap from all the local commercial crappy stations. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do my own music show. And uh, and I initially I did. I started playing songs like Gypsy and Krabby Appleton and, and Blue Mist and, and these unknown yeah. bands. They were actually, they got airtime, but just a little bit, because that's how I found out about them back in the 70s when I was a kid. It wasn't like these were well-known bands. They just got a little play, and, uh, and, 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 and some of the disc jockeys really liked it. But going back to the disc jockey... After a while, it's like some you know people look up to people, just like you mentioned about you know celebrities or or uh, athletes. People look up to them and they take everything that they say gospel. Well, it's the same thing with a disc jockey. So you know for a for a for a for a studio manager to sit there and say, well, we're not going to hire this, keep this disc jockey here because we're not going to pay him anymore, and people will still listen. Well, there's some truth to that, but guess what? When that disc jockey goes someplace else, his listeners are going to follow him because the relationship is with him and his listeners, not the radio station. And, yeah. and, and and when he says something, it's almost like a testimonial. I went to uh, Walker Ford, and I bought a Ford. I went to Dimmon Chevrolet, and I bought a Chevrolet. And there I, or I went to uh, AutoZone, or I went to Mike's Auto Parts, or something like that. I went to so-and-so's auto repair. They go, wow, well, if he goes there, it's got to be a pretty good place, because he's talking about it on the radio you, show. Bingo. Did you just name all of your sponsors? No, no, no. I don't. <laughs> I did that earlier in the show. But <laughs> but these are ones I'm trying to get on the show. Anyway. Okay. But, it's working. Okay, good. All right. Now, I got to ask you this: What's the Doctor Demento connection? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, we lived in Los Angeles, and um, at that time, uh, we finished our first album, and it was out, and we were uh, performing in clubs a lot and uh, producing new material for the second album. And uh, Doctor Demento, I think the first cut he got a hold of from us was "Fast Food," which he played. And uh, he that moved up his charts very quickly. And then he had us come in the studio every now and then. Uh, we were there with Weird Al. Weird Al was brand new back then. And uh, so we were all just kind of hanging out together in Los Angeles. Um, and Rhino Records picked up the Dr. Demento, the best of Dr. Demento, I think it is. And they licensed fast food from us for that and a dog ball and a couple others. Uh, on, on Dr. Domeno's album. So, it's over the years, you know, uh, because he, his show depended on those kinds of quirky uh, comedy and song parodies and album cuts. You know, we just became friends with him. And, um, uh, you know, whenever th- anything came out, we'd send it to him first because he had, at the time, he was on several hundred radio stations. He had a huge following. You know, it's funny because when, when I hear Dr. Demento, the first time I heard it was back in the day, but we used to hear him in the evening. And the thing that comes to mind, and I actually have the clip, but I forgot to cue it up. P-headed, scum-sucking, pencil-neck geek. Remember how he used to do that? All oh, the God, time? Yeah. That was a great cut. And, hey, Tommy, you got that other little thing queued up for us? That that one I I emailed yeah, the one I emailed you, the whatever that last one was, the the sandpaper deal. <laughs> We're gonna play. That, now, did you and your wife write that one? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's based on a true story. Based on a true story. Okay, no, they all they all know, are. At the time, at the time, there were a lot of those case tests. Remember, you know, we 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 uh, we uh, offered this person, you know, a cup of coffee along with Nescafe. They didn't know what they were drinking, you know, <laughs> with mud, whatever. They would do these taste tests, blind taste tests. So we, we thought, let's do one with something they would never do a taste test with. <laughs> you got it queued up there, Avery? He's working on it. Okay, you ready? Go ahead, play it if you got it. Excuse me, ma'am. I wonder if you might tell me why you're buying that particular brand of toilet paper. Huh? 
I said, why are you buying that particular brand of toilet paper? Well, I've always bought this kind. You know, in the beginning, you, you try several brands, but then in the end, you just get used to a certain kind and stick with it. Uh, stay with it. Ma'am, here, <laughs> try new Sandell. Right now? There's a lot of money in it for you, ma'am. Okay. My gosh, feels like sandpaper. New Sandell. It feels like sandpaper, but it's not. This is really something. Now let's look at it under a microscope. How disgusting. Oh, we'll use a new piece of Sandell, ma'am. You oh. can keep this one. Oh. See? New Sandell has an extra strength layer of tiny cleaning fibers. Why, this stuff is strong enough to wash your car. Huh. It's especially good on stubborn rust and muddy fenders. Well, I'm going to tell all my friends about it. New Sandell. It feels like sandpaper, but it's not. So <laughs> that's good. I had to, I liked it because it had the the car connection. You know, it's good on rust. Um, so you and your <laughs> wife, did you guys do actually do stand up comedy routines then? Yeah, but that was one bit we were never able to do on stage. So oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that was a hard one to do. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can get a visual, but uh, nonetheless. But anyway, but no. So seriously, so you did uh, stand up comedy then in L.A. and you were yeah, we played the comedy store and the improv the most and. Uh, from that, we consulted. We were creative consultants for Dick Clark. Really? He had a couple of comedy shows at the time. And through him, we got a lot of those, a lot of those short bits recorded as videos. And NBC bought a bunch of them from us. And they would run them all the time. Plus, Dick put them on a lot of his shows. Like, uh, uh, what were some of those shows? Those, they were like home videos. The home video shows he used to do. Uh -huh. And so we would stack the deck with a bunch of our goofy little bits in it. He was a good guy. Um, how competitive was that in, in in those days? In that in that uh, in, in in that particular field that you were at? I mean, as far as with comedy writers and stuff like that, was that uh, extremely competitive? You know, it never felt competitive. There there was actually a brotherhood sisterhood feeling really about comedy in Los Angeles at the time. I'm I'm sure eventually it got pretty bloody, but no, at the time. There seemed to be room for everybody. You know, there seemed to be an unlimited amount of demand for stand-up. Well, because remember, video was home video was pretty much brand new. So if you had a, a long enough stand-up act, someone was going to say, hey, we'll record the act, we'll put it out as a video. Well, Joy and I, instead of doing that, we did a video called How to Party. Because we noticed uh. in the video stores, there was a, lot, there was a how-to section. This whole how-to section that was like... These section of there was more stuff in the how-to section than anywhere, so we thought we'd spoof that and did how to party, and uh, it was a one-hour video that uh, we sold, made a bunch of money on because there was a demand for it. You know, it was an easy thing to do, and in that, if you ever see it, it's around. I think you'll find some of it on the internet. I saw it this uh, afternoon. I was watching. It's hilarious. <laughs> so you, if you look through there, you'll see a lot of stand-up comics and/or. Improv uh, people from the Groundlings, people from Second City, from various uh, improv groups that that you know they all worked for free or like yeah Ron we'll help you out you know so that was my first uh, video directorial thing where I put a whole hour together I didn't know what I was doing which I think shows in there but at least uh, you know we did it no but it was actually pretty funny I mean you know it, and you had just because kind of, the guy kept bumping in walking in there and everybody was kind of picking on him and, oh, yeah. and then the subtitles and everything that was good let me ask you this. When you were back in the radio days, how about interviewing musicians and bands? What was that like, and who were some of the really cool guys that came into your studio? And, and how did you go about getting them into your studio? You had Rick Derringer on. I had Rick Derringer on, yeah, to name a few. I, I interviewed Rick Derringer, and, and, you know, he used to, his real name is Derringer, Dick Zer, Rick Zeringer. Zeringer with a Z, right. With the, yeah, he was with the McCoys, with his brother. Yep. Hang on, Sloopy. Hang on, Sloopy. Mm -hmm. Do you know he helped get? Uh, he was involved with Weird Al Yankovic, produ Yankovic producing some of his early stuff too. That's right. That's right. There's a connection there. Wow, I didn't know it at the, at the time when that was happening, but I remember reading that. But uh, back at, in the Casey days, Rick came in uh, when he was you know solo doing his solo stuff, mm -hmm. and uh, you know to show off what I knew, I said, "So, so how's your brother?" You know, and he looks at me with a blank stare and he goes, 
he's a vegetable now. And he <laughs> got, got real quiet in the room for a minute. I said, oh, okay, so let's uh, they just moved on to something else. I never did find out what that meant, and I was afraid to ask, so I just let it go. Wow. So when you did interviews back in the day, did you keep them kind of like on the up and up, or what kind of what what was the subject matter? Would you talk about the albums, and how much time did you actually have with the with a when you were interviewing a, a well this, a rock this star? thing? We had a philosophy at Casey. Okay, when you got two two people talking on the air and you're not playing music, probably more people tune out than tune in. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, I mean that was the philosophy, but we ignored it. We broke the rule, and if someone came in and they wanted to sit there and talk to us for an hour. We let them sit there and talk to us for an hour because it was the fact that we would dare to do it that mattered. So any band that came into town, if you know if they had an album out, we were playing them. They were welcome to come in. So consequently, we got to interview just about everybody. Uh, you mentioned it, didn't you? Had the Doobie Brothers on one? No, I I met Tom. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get uh, Tom Johnson. Um, I've I've, oh. I've met him and I've interviewed him out out west along with uh, Pat Simmons, but I have yet to get him on the show. Uh, well, here's what happened when I had him on. Oh, you did have him. Good. Yeah, they, they came in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, ah, well, it was like 5 or 6 o'clock. I was doing drive time. So they come in, they interview. As soon as they turn on the microphone, they lit up a joint. Oh. And I turn around, and they hand it to me. And I'm like, okay, my license is on the line here. I have the Doobie Brothers here. I don't want to say goodbye to them this fast, but I had to. So I just said, you know. Asked him a question, said thanks for coming in, and got left, escorted him out. Now, I, that's not to say that I don't. I'm against smoking pot. I'm against breaking federal SEC rules that loses my job. Is what I'm against. But my my boss called me up. And he goes, "Did I just hear the shortest interview in the history of this radio station?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, you did." And he goes, "With the Doobie Brothers?" I said, "Yeah, yeah. Well, they took that Doobie thing a little seriously." <laughs> He goes, okay, good choice, Ron, and he hangs up. So, bands like let's talk about Gypsy, and uh, you know Joel Waltz, and, or uh, yeah, I think it knows it, James Waltz, James Waltz, and um, James. Yeah. So, when, I've met Joe too. So, but okay. So when these guys, the the Gypsy was kind of like where I'm going with this is that there were some really good bands that were kind of like startup bands that were trying to get their name out there. And the legend has it that KC was one of the few radio stations in the country that would actually play a lot of these startup band music. And then did you have those people actually come into the, the studio and get a chance to interview them as well? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I still see James Walsh regularly. In fact, uh, they, he still lives in Minneapolis, where he's from. Mm -hmm. Back then, in the early 70s, they got the sweetest album deal. They moved to L.A. and they became the house band at uh, Whiskey A Go Go. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And the Roxy, both. They were the house band of both for a while, but Whiskey was the big one. And and that's quite a prestigious thing. I mean, they were like musicians, musicians. Mm -hmm. All the musicians in LA had to go in when Gypsy was playing there because they were just so good. So they got their first album deal was a double album. And no band starts with a double album. And it's not a live album, it's an actual double studio album. Uh, and it was, at the time, it was a lot of money. They got $70,000 to produce that album, which in the early 70s, you know, you're not going to, as a brand new band, you're not going to, you know. So, and it was a great album. You've heard it. You yes. And I, I, it was on Metro Media Records, and I think that was their problem. It, the label wasn't prepared for something to take off like it did. Uh, and to this day, they regret, because they turned down a major label for that deal, and they thought, well, we'll go with a smaller label because we'll get more attention there. Well, that was a big mistake. So that's why, that's the only reason why they never made it big, but when we heard the album, see, we, we didn't look at charts, and we didn't, you know, go to Billboard to see, you know, who's charting and who's selling. We played what we really liked and what we thought was good, and they were good, and we played them. So they were big in L.A., in the club scene. They were big in St. Louis. They were big in Minneapolis, where they were from. And without you, they were big nowhere else. I think you got them. You got some airplane Clearwater, right? We got airplane Clearwater, and that's how I found out about them. WLCY. Yeah, there you go. So really, that's. I mean, they. What's amazing is they went out those years, and they have like I don't know, six or seven albums. I mean, they 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 aren't hurting. They kept producing stuff, 
Uh, of course, Enrico Rosenbaum, who is the guy who wrote that great music, uh, died in uh, 79. 79, okay, yeah. thank you. Um, which was sad, uh, and, and that had a lot to do with their, their fail to, failure to be a success. Uh, the story is that when they played uh, Super Jam in St. Louis at Bush Stadium, and it was a sold-out show, like 40,000 people came to see him. He looked at that crowd, and he realized this is the biggest crowd he's ever going to play to, and it's not happening anywhere else in, in the world. It's just in St. Louis. And it depressed the hell out of him, which is really, really sad, but uh, there it is, you know. Uh, but James carried on with the band. Um, I think he's changed drummers about 50 times now. Huh. <laughs> but other than that, which is normal for a band, right? Um, but James carries on and, 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 and sings it beautifully. If you hear him on stage, they're as good as the first day they've ever done it. His voice is as strong as ever, his beautiful voice. Uh, and they have a new album out that just came out uh, like last month. I have to look into that because I'd like to get him on the show. We had uh, um, Dave Wagner on from Crow, which is also a uh, Minnesota-based band. Castaways were Minnesota-based band. Um, you know, this, it's what's interesting is that you know everybody thinks L.A. or New York. You know, they forget that the Midwest, up north, uh, you know, even Detroit. I mean, Detroit had a lot of good bands, but seems like yeah. they had to go elsewhere to get fame and fortune, and a lot of them kind of made a stop uh, halfway to L.A., and it was a place called KC in St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah, and, and there was a network of stations at the time. It wasn't just KC, but KC, uh, 53 years later, it's still there. It, it, it no longer does that. I mean, you, the guy's on the air. I mean, John Eulis still on the air. I hired him when he was 19 years old, and he's still there and still on the air. That station has maintained a, you know, a, consistency through the years but they've tightened up their format but yeah back then you know it was a different world musically i mean you know if you think about it robert that still exists it's just on the internet now you know it's it's possible for a young musician to get the exposure to just different channels well, the other thing I wanted you to, to 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 elaborate on a little bit was the fact that when you were program director you hired young kids with no experience to be disc jockeys yeah. at working radio. Well, Tell well, us about actually, that. I, I can't take credit for that. As PD, I, I, I followed the lead of, of my boss, Shelley Grafman. Uh-huh. In 66, uh, Casey was in a guy's basement, and it was like beautiful music kind of thing, playing Frank Sinatra and stuff. And uh, Shelley and Howard Grafman bought the station. Uh, Howard was probably 48 years old, and Shelley was 42 or something like that. And uh, Howard was uh, had the broadcast experience, and Shelley was selling life insurance door to door. So he hired his brother Shelley to run it, and Shelley came in as sales manager first. And then they, uh, Ron Ellis was the program director, and he hired all of these top forty DJs from the A dial to be on the air. But told them we're going to play album cuts, we're going to do it different. But they still had that top forty thing about them, you know. And then when Shelley became Station manager, he took Ron Ells out and just slowly started replacing these seasoned veteran DJs with very young DJs, probably saving money in the process. I mean, think about it. If you're 18 years old, Joy was 17 when she started, Pat Hobbick was 18, Mark Close was 18, Jim Singer was 16. They were all very young and just in high school or just out of high school. So he didn't have to pay them much money. He just, he was a people person and he would meet you and say, yeah, you're good. You'd be good on this station. And then he gave us total freedom to learn how to do this, because he didn't know how. He was very honest about it. This is new to me, too. Let's, that, you know, we have the basic idea of what the rules are, but let's make up some of our own rules. Let's figure out how to do this. And he literally did that. I, was, I wasn't even there a month, and I walked into his office, and I said, I want to do this thing. I want to call it a musical bizarre, where it's a, a live show, in a venue there was a place called Music Palace in town that had a thousand people. And I said, I want to put a, a rock band in there, but I also want a bluegrass band. And I want some, like, light jazz. And my mom plays honky-tonk piano. I'd like to have my mom on this, playing yeah. honky-tonk piano, just to be different. And he says, okay. I said, what do you mean, okay? He goes, it's your idea. Go do it. And that changed my life. It totally changed my life because I, I was never told, okay, go do it, you know? 
And uh, he said, you know, you need somebody from out of town, though, so that it has some legitimacy to it. And it looks like more like a regular concert, just goofy, you know. Uh, he says, I, there's this kid, there's this guy up in Chicago. His first, his first album just came out on Family Records. His name is Billy Joel. Here's his phone number. Give him a call. So I called this guy named Billy Joel. And Billy says, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll come down. Uh, just have a grand piano on stage and a, and a piano stool and a microphone and make sure the piano's tuned and, and I'll be there. And Billy showed up. My mom opened for Billy Joel. And a thousand kids paid $3 each to see Billy Joel the first time. That's amazing. Ron, we are up against the clock, but real quick, what was the first rock and roll song ever played at KC back in 67? It was White Rabbit. You got it. <laughs> Ron, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here. I think we got a minute or so. We got oh, three minutes. You know how it is with the radio. We got three minutes. Yeah, what yeah. can you tell us? What kind of lies, tales, and stories can you give us in three minutes? Oh, my God. Oh, my. Thanks for, <laughs> what I need, the pressure. Now we're down to two and a half minutes. Hurry up. <laughs> what about, what about, what about, your documentary. Real quick. Tell us real quick on your documentaries. Okay, well, Casey turned 53 years ago, and I decided to do a documentary about those first 10 years at Casey, and it's called Never Say Goodbye, the Casey documentary. You can find it online just by searching Never Say Goodbye, the Casey doc. Just put the Casey documentary, and it'll come up. Okay. I need to give you an address for it. And uh, most of these people, I, all of them except two, are still alive, and they flew into St. Louis from, uh, from Florida. Uh, Richard Fendelman is still down there at, near Clearwater, down in the Tampa area. Uh, runs a video production company. Um, Peter Mayer was the chief White House correspondent for CBS News out of Washington, D.C. He's from Casey. He flew in. Richard uh, uh, Richard Palmisi became the president of MCA Records. He flew in for it. And all these Whoa. guys allowed me to interview them and tell their story about how this station was made up of a whole staff of young kids who had no experience and by 1976 was known around the world. Absolutely amazing story. Ron, if people want to find out more about you or the uh, society there, how do they go about doing it real quick? All right, just go to, go to uh, you know what, go right now, go to Keep Live Alive St. Louis on Facebook because that was my latest project. Okay. We raised uh, over $100,000 for uh, people working in the live entertainment industry in St. Louis who lost money from the from the pandemic. Um, so we paid out thousand dollar checks to families that needed it because they haven't been working for a year. So you'll find me there. Keep Live Alive St. Louis on Facebook. Ron, can we get you to come back? Yeah, this is fun. Of course you can. All right. So you know, I, I know it was your first time on the radio, but uh, <laughs> you did good. Uh, anyway, I, I, it was a real treat to have a seasoned veteran on the show. I really truly enjoyed it. You're a lot of fun, Gas. Maybe we'll get you and your wife to come on together, and we can have some comedy shenanigans. That'd be fun. Would you like to do that? That would be a blast. And I'm going to call James Walsh because you got to talk to him. I definitely want to have him on the show. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I want to thank my special guest, the legendary, I'm going to say, Casey Disc Jockey, Program Director for Casey out of St. Louis, Missouri, Ron Stevens. Ron, thank you. Have a great afternoon, and uh, look forward to having you on the show again. Thanks, Robert. You have a good one, too. Take care. All right, guys, don't forget, every Tuesday night here on the Tantalk Radio Network, don't forget, Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. for the most legendary and fascinating names, or fascinating and legendary names in motorsports and radio and music. I want to see you guys at some of the car shows. Don't forget, Meekum's coming up here July 28th through the 31st. Yes, sirree, Meekum's at the Orlando, Orange County Convention Center. Uh, Monterey Collective Car Week in August, Monterey, California. It's a gas, man. Hey, in the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in. Don't forget, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.
WTAN, Clearwater. FM 106.1. WDCF, Dade City. FM 102.3. WZHR, Zephyr Hills. FM 104.3. Listen.